invite you to open your Bible with me this morning, once again, to Romans chapter 5. I'm loath to leave this book, but we've, we've come to the, uh, this chapter, I mean. That's one of my favorite chapters in the book of Romans. Or Romans chapter 5, we have come to the last two verses, verses 20 and 21, and we'll be focusing on that this morning. Verses 20 through 21, as Paul summarizes um, not only the truth of chapter 5, but uh, he's concluding the second major portion of the book, which began at 321, and uh, we'll talk about that as we, as we look at the text. Let's begin by giving our attention to God's Word, Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Spirit, we thank you that you have inspired these words, and we thank you that you've been given to us that we might understand them. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would give us then that ability that comes from God to understand the things of God and to see and taste the goodness of God to us in our Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in this scripture. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message this morning is Abounding Grace. I'd like to ask, begin by asking you this morning, uh, what in your life would you say is abounding? Uh, what is uh, a reality in your, in your day-to-day life that maybe colors the rest of your life, maybe overwhelms the rest of your life. Uh, for some people, the, the abounding reality in your life is, is a hard thing, like chronic pain. Uh, it just never leaves. Every day it's there and, and has to be dealt with in colors every day. For, for others, it is a devastating loss. C.S. Lewis, in the loss of his wife, I said, her absence is like the sky, it, it covers everything. That was, his grief was the abounding reality of his life. Uh, for some of you, it can, it can be, you know, a, a blessed thing, like young children. And um, they just sort of define your life. I was just remembering that uh, when Joanna and I hit our fifth wedding anniversary, we had four children, ages four and under, and so we were abounding in runny noses and dirty diapers and sleepless nights. Um, that just defined the contours of our life, and, and some of you understand right now what that's like. Well, this morning we're going to see that in spite of the, the hardships and heartaches that we do face in life, the experience of the Christian is ultimately meant to be an experience of abounding grace, an experience of abounding grace. The abounding grace of God to us in Jesus Christ is meant to be the thing, the reality that colors every day. So that no matter what we're going through, that truth, the reality of God's abounding grace to us in Jesus and His sovereign purposes in that grace, that's meant to be the thing that is like the sky over every one of our days. Well, this morning we're coming to a, the end of a significant portion, you could call it part two in Paul's letter. And to just quickly review where we've been so far, Paul's introduction, if you have your Bible, you can kind of just follow and quickly see that. 
Chapter 1, 1 through 17 is Paul's introduction, and it concludes with sort of the thematic statement of the entire letter, which is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is going to be a letter about the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. These are all just words that he's going to unpack through the letter. To the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's the thematic statement. The righteous will live by faith. And then Paul goes into the first portion in chapters 1, verse 18 through 320, where he's going to talk about man's universal desperate need for the righteousness of God. Because men are unrighteous and are under the wrath of God, which is being revealed from heaven. That's 1 verse 18 and then following. And Paul, at first, uh, at the, uh, 118 through the end of chapter 1, talks about the unrighteousness of the Gentile world. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and God gives them over to perversions to do what ought not to be done. And, and then, uh, surprisingly and uh, disconcertingly for the Jewish readers, in chapter 2, he picks up, well, the Jews are also under the wrath of God. Yes, they have the law of Moses and they're descendants of Abraham, but they do not keep the law of Moses and they do not share the faith of Abraham. And so the, the wrath of God is also upon them. And then Paul summarizes the plight of mankind in 3 verse 19 and 20 saying, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That is the plight of humanity. That's the crisis of our world. But God has a gracious response to that crisis. And so 321 starts with that wonderful word, but. But now the righteousness of God is being revealed. Righteousness that is by faith. And so the second major portion, part two of Paul's letter, beginning 321 through 521, is this theme, the truth of the doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith alone and and because of grace alone. Justification being this uh, just gracious declaration on God's part where he declares sinners like you and me, sinners like everyone he's talked about in chapters 1 and 2, true sinners, God declares them to be righteous and innocent in his sight by virtue of the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, which God joyfully gives as a free gift to everyone who believes. That's the gospel. The free gift of righteousness by grace alone and through faith alone to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine of justification. That's the core truth of the gospel. And now in chapter 5... You remember Paul has been giving us sort of a, his, teaching the truth of the gospel from a different angle, looking sort of historically, redemptively at the big picture, and he's, he's pointed out two men and two acts and two results, the two men being Adam on the one hand, Jesus Christ on the other hand. 
The two acts, the disobedience of Adam and the obedience of Jesus Christ. The results, condemnation and death through Adam and justification and eternal life through Christ. And the identity and destiny of every single human person is determined by which of these two do you belong? Who is your federal head? By birth, it's Adam. By faith, it's Jesus Christ. Paul's been talking about that now in Romans chapter 5, and, and he concludes that just brilliant dissertation by highlighting the abounding grace of God in all of it, and that's where we are this morning. We're going to look first at our, the need for grace, and then the, God's response of grace, and then third, the reign of grace. The need for grace, the response of grace, and the reign of grace. Paul begins in verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law was added, inserted, in order to increase the trespass. You might wonder why Paul is going back to the law at this point, um, but if you remember what he's been talking about, it makes, it makes sense. As, as we've said, Paul has painted this picture of God's dealing with men throughout history, God's saving work. And, and so there are two central figures, as we said, Adam and Jesus Christ. And, and all of human history is summarized by those two men and everything that flows from them. But to the Jewish mind, Paul is leaving out a critically important figure, Moses, right? They look at the painting that Paul is painting. They see Adam, yes, and they see Jesus. Where's Moses? Because, you know, Paul is saying there are two representative heads. There's, there's, there's Adam and Christ, and, and they're federal heads, representative heads, and, and everyone belongs here or here. But but, but the Jews were convinced that there's a third option. There's another federal head, and, and that's the, the headship of Moses. They did not see themselves as being in Adam the way the Gentiles were. They weren't in Adam. They had been baptized into Moses when they went through the Red Sea. They were in Moses and, and were absolutely confident that being in Moses and living according to the Mosaic law, that that was sufficient to make them right with God. They were certain of it. So how can Paul paint this picture of redemptive history and ignore Moses and ignore God's holy law? It's, it's just a fatal, fatal oversight. So what, how are you going to respond to that? Well, Paul is uh, Paul's going to respond by saying, I'm not ignoring Moses and I'm not ignoring the law. But what Paul is doing is highlighting the purpose of of the law. Why did God give it? What is the law for? The Jews are convinced that the law is to help them onto God. It's, it's sort of the path that God lays down that those who walk in it, right, can gain merit the blessings of God. Everlasting life can be gained through being a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, and, and following the Mosaic path. But, but Paul points out that's not why the law was given. 3.19, we've already read it, but, but he says the law was given so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. 
Every mouth, Jew and Gentile mouth. 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 5.20, the law was given so that trespass might increase. How does that work? How did the law make trespass increase? Well, there are several ways. Uh, and Paul will talk about both of these in Romans chapter 7. But in, in one way, it, it leads to an increase in trespass in the sense that actions which were not recognized as sin are now seen and clearly recognized to be sin when the law comes. And so Paul will say in Romans 7, 7, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law teaches us what, what is sin in it, and it increases sin in the sense that what we just thought was our you know, normal way of doing life, now the law comes along and says, no, that's, that is radically abnormal and rebellion against God. And in that sense, sin increases. But there's another way that sin increases through the law, and that is that sin, the law actually incites rebellion against its own demands. And Paul will talk about that in Romans 7, 8. He'll say, uh, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. When the law says, thou shalt not covet, sin laid a hold of that and produced every kind of covetousness. Sin, you see, plus law, produces rebellion. Some things are just a dangerous mixture. I, I did a very quick Google search on dangerous mixtures. Here's a great example. When potassium chlorate and ordinary table sugar are combined and a drop of sulfuric acid is added as a catalyst, the two react violently with each other, releasing large quantities of heat energy, a spectacular purplish flame, and a great deal of smoke. Now, I know some of you are thinking, what is potassium chlorate and where can I buy it? <laughs> because that's what the law does. It incites rebellion. That sounds like a good idea. You see, when, when you mix God's good, holy law with a rebellious human heart, the result is a desire to sin. That's just what a rebellious heart does. The result is an increase in trespass. And so uh, Cruz in his commentary says, one thing is clear. Paul sees the law as part of the human predicament, not its solution. The law is not the solution. It's part of the human predicament. It was never meant to be the solution to the problem of human sin and condemnation. It just highlights and manifests the problem. Law was not given to make us right with God. And so Moses is no refuge. Trying to live by the law is no help. Grace is our only hope. And, and Paul is doing everything in his power to just slam the door on every other attempt people would, would, would make, every other appeal that they, they, they would try to, to make themselves right with God, to, to try to, uh, to merit their way with God. And Paul just is slamming doors. No, 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 no. 
There is no chance of you escaping the condemnation and death that you deserve in Adam and because of your own sin. There is no chance of you escaping apart from the grace of God. And that is not just grace to help you do what the law says. That is grace all the way, all the way down to give you what you could never possess. And that's the beauty of the last part of that verse. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but, it's that lovely word, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Let's look at the response of grace. Grace abounded all the more. It is such a wonderful phrase. So incredibly unexpected, so perfectly contrary to human expectations and so thoroughly undeserved. If you knew of a man, if you knew of a woman, maybe a, a friend of yours back in high school and your, 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 your ways had kind of gone your separate ways, you went on to college and now you're back in town and, and you find out that she's really gone off the deep end, that uh, this, this former friend um, is just a thoroughly adulterous woman. She's married to a good and godly man, but she is constantly running after other men and sleeping with them. And um, finally, her husband finds out the evidence is, is overwhelming, and uh, unfortunately, your former friend is thoroughly unrepentant. She loves her sin. She makes it clear to you and anyone who tries to talk to her that she's uh, committed to it. She's going to continue in it. What would you advise the husband to do? Well, I think everyone would say there's only one thing he can do. He's, he's going to have to file for divorce. You, you can't stay married to someone who is continually violating the bonds of the marriage. She, she's utterly forfeited, right, her, her right to that marriage because of her sin. Everyone would say that divorce is his only option. And, and in the world of men, that might be true, but, but praise God, it's not that way with God. Because you see, though our rebellion and the increasing fountain of our, of our sin and trespasses and iniquities, this vileness that just flows from us, though that screams to heaven for condemnation and judgment, God responds with grace. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. It's a stunning, stunning, unexpected truth. God being a holy God, we would not expect this. Paul uses a big word to pound the point home. The word is hyperparasuo. You hear the word hyper there, hyperparasuo. That, that word hyper is just, it's grace in the superlative. Grace to the greatest possible degree. Where sin increases, grace hyperabounds. What does that mean? How does grace superabound? Well, it, it's all over the place in the gospel. It, it superabounds in the fact that, that God himself comes to earth, not to condemn the world, but to save the world, right? God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. God himself, he doesn't send an angel, doesn't send just another prophet. 
But he sends his son, his one and only son, in the form of a, a little baby, in the form of and likeness of man, not to condemn, but to rescue. He comes to his adulterous world, not to divorce us, but to die for us. The grace of God superabounds when, when the perfect sinless Son of God is nailed to a cross. For our sin, bearing our guilt, purchasing our pardon, robing us in His righteousness, and securing for us reconciliation with the Father and eternal joy in His resurrection. This means that, you see, friends, what this means, that when, when the, the Bible says that, that grace superabounds, it means that your sin, as true as it is and as awful as it is, is not the final definitive reality of your life. Grace is. Grace is. Your identity and your destiny are not determined by your trespasses, but by God's superabounding grace to you in Jesus. The story of your life is not being written by your guilt but by God's grace. And that's, that's true every day. And it's true in the most glorious, ultimate, profound sense. So that as we were once under the reign of death, and that reign of death is as awful as it sounds. It's physical and spiritual death. You look in the world that we live in today, men and women who are in Adam are under the reign of death, where, where everything is broken, and there's incredible spiritual blindness. And there's, there's evil, wickedness beyond what you can maybe even imagine. And, and, and then there's alienation from God in this life and forever. It's, it is an awful thing to be an Adam. And no human being has the ability to escape that reign of death. We, we can't break its bonds. There's no, there's no uh, therapy or, or, or some technique that can rescue you read the tragic, just a fleeting headline of, of uh, some uh, former Hollywood model that's now homeless on the street, and I just saw a, a little tag where she says, quote, there is no help for me. There's no help for me. And that's, ex that's exactly right for all of us outside of Jesus. There's no help. But, but, in Christ, those who believe in Christ, been, have been rescued from the reign of death, brought out of the kingdom of darkness, and brought into the kingdom of God's Son. We've brought, been brought under the glorious reign of grace, which means that the operating principle of your life now in Christ is the principle of grace. Grace is the air that you breathe. Grace is the ground that you walk on. It's the reality in which you, upon which you stand. It's the truth upon which you fall. All of your life with God in Christ is grace all the way down. Now, I, I, I know I've not said a single thing there that you haven't heard before. But the fact is, we don't believe it in truth, in, or at least in its fullness. As I was just studying this week, I'm thinking, good heavens. If people were following me around in my life from day to day, is that what we, they would discern that, that the, you know, the, the, the determining reality of Van Dyke's life is the grace of God. He never complains. He's always joyful. He's thoroughly thankful. Isn't that what they should say? Isn't that what they should say? 
What's, what's the disconnect? Well, the disconnect is, well, we've heard this, but there's a soft skepticism. Is it really true, and can I really believe it? Can I really receive it? And, and what would happen if I would just let go of all my need to control things, and I would let go of my fear and my anxiety, and if I would let go of my pride, and I would just die to all that stuff, and I would let the grace of God reign in my life? What might happen? Well, what might happen is a transformed life. It would, what would probably happen, what would undoubtedly happen, would be a life of joy and peace and believing. Exactly the thing that we ask God to give us, even in the heartache and the trial. I was uh, just struck. I was uh, talking with my brother Randy this week after they'd heard the news, stopped by his place and and it's not good news. And yet, he just shared with me how the peace of God is absolutely settled upon him. And it's evident all over his face. The peace of God. Well, the only way you can have that is because you, if you're convinced that, that even this is saturated with grace and the grace goes all the way down. And you believe, what Paul says here, that that God is sovereignly at work in His grace to lead us to eternal life. That's what He says, leading to eternal life. That's the great purpose and design of grace. That's the end which grace immutably and uh, invincibly pursues, right? God's resolve, His sovereign resolve in Jesus is not just to forgive us. That, that's just the, the means to the end. He washes away the sin so that He can bring us into His presence. He, he gives us Jesus by faith in this world and in this life so that we can be with Jesus in the world to come. It's all heading there. It's, it's, about, it's about eternal life with the Father and the Son and the Spirit in the, in the new heaven and the new earth. That's where it's all going. That's where it's all purposed. That's its end. That's its goal. That's its resolve. And that's the reverberating refrain of the New Testament. That's what the gospel is for. I love what C.S. Lewis says in his uh, The Weight of Glory. And he writes uh, about how the beauty that we see in the world just arouses longing within us, a longing for something more. And, and he says that, that something more is participation. We don't want to just see the beauty. We want to mingle with it. With it. We want to enter into it. We want to be beautiful. We want to belong in a world where there's beauty and there's glory and there's honor. We want to fit there. That's the longing of God's children, and that's the promise of grace. Lewis says, we discern the freshness and purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors that we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And God is willing. And we shall get in. The sovereign, invincible grace, the reign of grace in our life will certainly achieve its end. This is not our home, as we heard as we began the service. But that is. Friends, that's the truth of the gospel. My question for you this morning is, do you believe it? Will you believe it? Will you believe it? Will you just face the skepticism in your life that allows you to doubt the goodness of God to you? 
or that, or that holds you back from just leaping into this ocean of grace, that, that holds you back from trusting completely the, the, the ways of God in your life? Are you, are you willing to, to let that go and to trust yourself to the reign of grace? What would God have to do to show you that He delights in you and He delights to show grace to you? Would it be enough if He sent His only Son to die on a cross? to give you everlasting life? And could you trust Christ's righteousness freely given to you by faith as sufficient to bring you forever under the reign of abounding grace? May God grant it be so. Amen. Father in heaven, there is a great danger in hearing familiar words that we, in the familiarity, turn aside from their weight and truth and remain skeptical skeptical about their glory. And Father, we just pray that this morning you'd break through that, that cynicism, that that goes with us in so many ways and that today we would open our heart to receive and believe the full glory of your grace to us in Jesus Christ that we are never alone and that grace is constantly at work with infinite wisdom and skill to achieve its glorious end eternal life where we reign with Jesus Christ in a new world. And Father, I thank you that you've given us Jesus Christ, your son, on a cross, and that I thank you that this morning, Jesus, you give us this sacrament so that we can taste the, the certainty of these things with our, with our own mouth and know that as we take the bread and the wine and they become part of our body, we have become part of Jesus Christ. And belonging to him, we cannot be lost. Father, I pray if there are any here this morning who do not, do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord Jesus, please, by your Holy Spirit, convict them of their great tragedy, their, their crisis, as they are in Adam and under condemnation today. And yet, by calling on the name of the Lord in, in faith, they can be saved and brought under the beautiful reign of grace. And we pray it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.